This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. The word historic gets thrown around a lot, and not always correctly, but with $10 trillion of government bonds offering negative yields today, this is indeed at least new territory for the markets. To discuss what's on the mind of investors, I'm very pleased to be joined by Peter Oppenheimer, the Chief Global Equity Strategist for Goldman Sachs Research. Peter, welcome to the program. Hello, Jake. So, Peter, since 2012, you've published a series of reports on what you've called the long goodbye, which is not a Raymond Chandler novel, but (laughs) B-U-Y, an argument that's favored stocks over bonds. Stock valuations around the world have risen significantly over that span. How has your view changed and what are the various scenarios going forward? Well, the reason we argued that it was a long goodbye, a great opportunity for investors in riskier assets like equities back then, was not because the future in 2012 seemed very certain, but that valuations were very low. And we thought investors were being, if you like, rewarded for taking some risk. As you quite rightly say, Jake, three or four years later, valuations have gone up a lot in all financial assets because bond yields have fallen. And that makes the absolute argument harder to make. We think absolute returns in financial assets will be lower moving forward. But on a relative case, we still think there are better risk-adjusted opportunities in equities than bonds. So the case underlying long goodbye, I think, still holds. Having said that, there are different ways in which it can evolve from here. And our recent report really tries to focus on those. We have talked since the beginning of this year of a equity market environment that we describe as fat and flat. What we mean by this is that relatively flat returns in aggregate, because valuations have already kind of reached their limits as interest rates are now close to zero, and the returns will be driven by lower profit growth. And the fat part of it is a kind of description of a trading range where you go from occasional fears about economic downturns and deflation, as we were seeing in January of this year, to occasional bouts of optimism about reflation. And that's really been what we've seen since July, I think. And so for the investor who's not playing that fat piece of the trade, Mm. what are the other scenarios that we could envision going forward? Well, the opposite almost of that is what we describe as Goldilocks, sort of everything going right. And there's been a bit of a sense of that just recently in the way that markets have behaved. And the idea here would be, for example, that you remain in a very, very low interest rate world. The Federal Reserve remains dovish. They see no urgency to raise interest rates. Bond yields stay low. But alongside that, you're seeing an environment where fiscal policy becomes an option for governments. They can borrow money very cheaply because bond yields are low. They start to boost fiscal spending and growth improves. So you get the growth without the consequences of higher rates. And that would be a very different environment to fast and flat because it would mean that in that world, although valuations are still already high, they could probably even go higher and you get some better profit growth and better economic growth as well. But it's hard to envision that monetary policy authorities sit quietly while growth picks up above trend. That really explains the third of the options we looked at, which is what we call reflation. And this is the environment where you do get better growth than people have imagined more recently, perhaps because of more fiscal spending. But with that, there's a cost. And the cost is that inflation picks up a bit. And so interest rates and bond yields rise. And that really caps equity valuations. It's not valuation that drives the markets higher, 
but slightly better profit growth because of better economic activity. That doesn't sound terrible. What's the most dire scenario you can pick? Well, the worst forward? is what we call stagflation. We're not envisaging here the sort of 1970s. 70s style stagflation? Without yeah. the flares, let's yeah. say. And, uh, <laughs> but what we're thinking here is an environment where you do get, because of, for example, full employment, wages going up, and that pushes up inflation, pushes up interest rates and bond yields. But that squeezes profit margins, you get low profit growth, and you don't really get the positive economic boost from fiscal policy that people imagine, either because it doesn't happen or because you get fiscal spending, but it just doesn't have the positive effect that people hope for. And that's a more negative combination. And I think would imply that you get lower valuations, both of bond markets as bond yields go up and prices fall, but also of equities where they derate. So you're based in London, where markets have so far shown very little uh, impact from the Brexit vote. Your colleague Hugh Pill was on this program a couple of months ago, and he talked about the risk of Brexit tilting the UK toward recession because of the uncertainty and some of the other factors. What's your current read on how Brexit's liable to impact European markets? Well, I think it's important to differentiate between the economy and markets. So far, the economic fallout has been less than many people expected. The um, real economy fallout. The real economy. You've seen consumer sentiment holding up better than many people would have expected given the surprise outcome for many. Exports have been strong, largely because the currency's weakened. But it's important to say that it's early days. And remember, the Article 50, the legal document to start the process of negotiations, hasn't been Yeah, there been are no real consequences so, yet. So yeah. in real terms, nothing yet has happened. So that could happen in time. From a financial market perspective, the notable things we've seen are that bond yields have fallen in the UK. The level of interest rates have come down, partly prompted by further easing from the Bank of England. But also, alongside that, sterling has weakened against both the dollar and the euro. And that's actually helped the equity market to go up. Bear in mind that when you look at the main liquid equity indices, for example, the FTSE 100, about 80% of the revenues of those companies are coming from outside of the UK. They're very global companies. They benefit a lot from this one-off fall in Sterling. In sterling, right. Uh, yeah. And that's helped to boost the value of the stock market. The very domestically exposed companies in the UK did have an initial sharp negative reaction from the uncertainty. But because so far the macro data hasn't really deteriorated, they too have seen quite a big bounce. And that's also been reflected in the more positive tone in equity markets generally in the last couple of months. So I think a lot that happens in the UK will really depend on the mix of the exchange rate moves and interest rates, but then ultimately what's happening to growth as these negotiations really start to get underway. So since the advent of QE, investors have been obviously very focused on monetary policy, but there seems to be a growing belief that either central banks have run out of bullets or that they need to take even bolder steps to ramp up growth. Larry Summers has argued that we're in a period of secular stagnation. What's your read on how investors view monetary policy today? Well, I think there has been a bit of a sea change, a shift in sentiment, really from the early summer of this year. At that stage, interest rates pretty much everywhere, at least policy rates had reached zero or very close to it. 
bond yields were increasingly moving downwards. And as you say, in many places, particularly in Japan and the Eurozone, many government bond yields had actually turned negative. And the rhetoric started to shift. And one key reason for this is that as central banks looked to ramp up their purchases of government bonds through extending QE programs, it was starting to have some negative unintended side effects, in particular in the banking sectors. And because you needed functioning banks really to generate or help to support growth, people started to believe that monetary policy, both conventional and unconventional, like QE, was really losing its potency. It was losing its efficacy. And I think the turning point really was somewhere around the middle of this year. And to some degree, supported by the growth of popularism and sort of political zeitgeist of focusing a little bit more on the lack of wage growth and economic activity, there's a narrative building up that fiscal policy is going to be a much more central platform or focus for policymakers as we move forwards in time. Obviously, we've got a big election here in the United States. We've seen major political developments in Europe and Latin America. What are the prospects for major fiscal stimulus and what impact could that have on the markets? If you look at the impact of monetary policy, certainly if we break down equity markets and look at different industries, we tend to find that falling rates, particularly when they get to such low levels, are quite bad for very economically sensitive cyclical industries, particularly bad for financials. And on a relative basis, they tend to be good for companies that are quite defensive, that have some yield, because in a very income scarce world, companies with yield become very attractive. In an environment where fiscal policy expands, things tend to shift a little bit. People want to be more exposed to the prospects of economic activity improving. So more cyclical, economically sensitive sectors do tend to do better. So that's one thing I think to look out for. But of course, typically with more public spending comes higher cost of funding. So the cost of debt tends to go up, you tend to get higher interest rates. And that again, brings back into play precisely the tensions that we've been discussing today. And we look at in our report, this sort of trade off between growth and interest rates. It's also true, of course, that fiscal policy expansion can take different forms. It could be tax cuts, it could be big, long dated investment projects. And the payoff from these things tends to vary. Tax cuts being more immediate, long-term infrastructure oftentimes being more longer dated. Yeah. 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 But again, I think it's important to be a little bit measured about this because it's an appealing narrative, but there are political constraints about how much fiscal expansion. Well, certainly, can be here realistic. in the U.S., is yeah, not. Yeah, you know, and, and most countries. Debt of our size. Right. It's hard to imagine that we'll embark on a massive program as much as some have advocated. And you have similar constraints in Europe and even in Asia, where debt level is already very high. Yeah. And I would note that if you look at Japan, just as a slight reality check. There you see the limits of both monetary and fiscal policy. You do. And yeah. you also can look back over the last sort of 25 years and see that since 1990, there have been something like 25 different fiscal expansion programs. And as yet, we've still not seen a dramatic recovery in activity. And indeed, the equity market tended to typically rally into those announcements, but then pull back as they somewhat underwhelmed. At the margin, we are shifting to a period where the stars are aligning a little bit for fiscal expansion, both politically 
and because bond yields are very low, so it's easier for governments to fund and borrow at very cheap rates. But there are political constraints which make the reality a little bit more complex and may not come as urgently as many investors would hope. There's certainly plenty of evidence in some places of the world that growth seems to be finding a slightly shorter footing. Particularly in the US, we've mm -hmm. seen steady job growth, higher wages, a little bit of an uptick in inflation. Can the US break free from its fat and flat all on its own, or does it need the rest of the world to come along? Well, I think in terms of asset markets, they do tend to be pretty correlated globally. So they tend to move directionally together, although you get big differences on a relative basis. And certainly the US, when we think of equity markets, has been an outstanding winner, really from the start of USQE some years ago. The US banking system was strengthened relatively quickly in the financial crisis. The economy has grown. And it's really been seen as a stable grower, a low volatility, safe place to be. And the US has outperformed dramatically. There are signs of improvement here, certainly. But as you say, you're getting close to a point of full employment. Wages are picking up. But you have to bear in mind this is happening at a time when US corporate profits are at a record high and corporate profit margins are at a record high. And these higher wages may bring with them some squeeze in margins, which will contribute to slower profit growth. And I think, again, it's a reflection of this trade-off between movements in prices and in interest rates on the one hand and growth on the other, which will really constrain the US still in this sort of fat and flat range. So you've said and we've seen that recovery in risk assets is particularly sensitive to US monetary policy, where our economists at Goldman here have been a little bit more hawkish than the rest of the market. So if their expectations play out over the next few years, what could that mean for assets globally? Well, what they're saying is that the markets have become too sanguine, too relaxed about the prospects for interest rates, both policy rates here in the US, but also long-term interest rates, bond yields. If you get slightly higher inflation than people are currently pricing, or growth is stronger, you will likely see a tightening of monetary policy, bond yields will pick up. What we're really saying is that given you now have quite high valuations across different asset classes, government bonds, but also equities, higher bond yields will probably trigger some weakness in asset prices that will keep you still in that fat and flat range that we've been discussing. It's very difficult to see markets breaking out significantly on the upside if we were to see bond yields picking up. And at the same token, if bond yields stay at these very low levels, it's probably because long-term growth remains very weak. So one way or another, you're likely to be stuck in this lower level of, of returns, lower level of growth kind of equilibrium. However, if we were to get into a phase where US interest rates had to rise much more quickly than the market is pricing, I think it's quite possible that vulnerabilities in some emerging economies would come back into the market focus. And that's another reason why sharply rising US rates, either at the short end or long-term bond yields, would be quite destabilizing for global economies and markets. Peter, let's end by looking back a bit farther the recent crisis, of course, isn't the only tumultuous period we've seen in markets. We've gone through world wars, depression, recessions, booms. When you look at the broader scope of the history of the last century or so and how markets have responded, what lessons can you draw about the current recovery? 
Well, I think the current recovery generally has been weak compared to those that we've seen coming out of recessions in the post-war period, for example. And it is a very unusual environment where we have such low interest rates and very low inflation, and we have valuations of risky assets at high levels, as we were discussing earlier. It's difficult to find a precise analogue. But I also think we need to put things into some historical comparison. If we think about the great bull markets of risky assets like equities that we've seen leading up to the financial crisis, they really had their roots in the early 1980s. That's when they really started. And it coincided with the global peak of inflation, a completely different period where interest rates were coming off extremely high levels. And as inflation was squeezed out of the system, interest rates came down, bond yields came down. That was good for risky assets, which also re-rated. But at the same time, as we moved towards the end of the 1980s, global risks started to fade as well. We had the sort of peace dividend after the Berlin Wall fell and the collapse of communism. Many political parties moved to the centre ground. So for a sort of 25-year period, you were seeing very little risk for investors, better growth, lower cost of capital because of lower interest rates. It was a very, very good time to invest in financial assets, particularly risky ones. If you think about it today, we've already reached, as we were discussing, a little bit the limits of monetary policy. Interest rates are already close to zero, so they're not likely to fall further. And if they did, that almost certainly would be a negative. We're starting to see slower global growth after the extraordinary period of globalization of the last 10 or 20 years. We keep um, resetting our expectation of what the high end of growth is. Yeah, and geopolitical risks have started to grow again. And in many countries, you're seeing politics become more polarized and therefore more of a risk for investors, particularly alongside more regulation. So it is a much tougher environment for returns in financial assets, I think. And one needs to be realistic and recognize that. But if it is a world where inflation remains low, in real terms, there are still decent returns to find. And I still think in a world where growth is relatively scarce and where interest rates are low, so income is scarce, investors will still reward companies, sectors, investments that offer those opportunities, sustainable, relatively predictable growth with some pickup in yield. And there are still areas that we can find that fit into those categories. And I think they'll remain very much in demand as we move forward. Peter, thanks for that modicum of optimism yeah. at the end. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us next time. This podcast was recorded on September 12, 2016. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast.
In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.